the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to Friday. It's the Friday edition, and we have no idea what was going on in our headsets with that introduction, but there was all kinds of distortion, so I hope and pray that everything is coming through clear. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's our main number. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, as always, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, Friday, boy, good night for us tonight. I'm getting to teach uh, out of Revelation chapter 3, Jesus' letter to the church in Philadelphia. Hint, hint, it is the best one, the best letter. Uh, the church that we all want to be a part of, the church that we all want to contribute to as Philadelphia-style Christians. So that's tonight here at 7 o'clock. If you can't make it, you can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com. And then on Friday night, we're going to be in our next-to-last study in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. So that's our Sunday series this weekend. Well, let me get to some questions people are sending in while we await your phone calls. The first one comes from Kevin. Uh, He says, a preacher once made prophecies about me in a public setting. None of those has come true yet. Is it my fault? Kevin, when I read your question, and I've had it for a few days, um, I, I was intrigued mostly because I had the same kind of thing happen to me. And those things sort of came true but not in any fashion or form the way that he said they would. Um, here's what happened, Kevin. You were in a charismatic church that was a little out of control, and a preacher decided that he was going to speak for God. Um, not only did he decide he was going to do that, he did, did it in a public setting, uh, and, and you know, the enemy uses that to, to kind of crash and um, burn, make our dreams rather crash and burn. One of the things we have to remember is if God wants to speak to you, he will. And these kind of God told me to tell you this kind of things or thus saith the Lord is absolute nonsense. Let me explain what happened to me. Um, I was a new Christian, maybe eight or nine months old in the Lord. Excited. The Lord had spoken to me a couple of months earlier and told me that I was going to be a pastor. And I'd been listening to this church uh, on the radio, local radio out there, 
Uh, I was young. I didn't know it was a goofy church, but I went out early in the morning, as was my uh, habit, and I said, uh, uh, Lord, do you have anything to say to me today? We're going to go to church, and we're going to hear the Word of God, and and I felt like it was Lord who told me to go to this church. It was uh, uh, Eagle's Nest Church in in uh, Orange County, California. Now, it's about 45 minutes from us. It was already in the morning. I had to go home, get ready, rush Paula, and get down there, drive 45 minutes. We made their, their, their second service. And uh, while I was sitting there, this pastor who was doing really crazy things, I mean, he was knocking people over, uh, just doing anything. And he walked by me, and then he came back, and he walked by me again, and then he came back, and he looked right at me, and he said, the Lord told me to tell you to pay attention because you're going to be doing this one day. And I thought, well, God called me to be a pastor. Is this what being a pastor is all about? And um, again, I can't tell you how many times the devil used that against me, Kevin, and evidently the enemy is hammering you as well for you to ask is it your fault that none of these things come true? This was a false prophet, um, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, and it's not your fault. So, Kevin, all you have to do is just be with Jesus, be obedient to what you know, be in the Word of God, spend time listening for the Spirit of God to speak to your boy or to your heart, and I promise you, you can't miss what God's perfect will is for your life. So, these so-called prophecies, and I say so-called because this isn't the gift of prophecy. First Corinthians makes it clear that that is a gift to edify, to encourage. And this hasn't been the case with you. It may have made you feel good at the beginning. God said this or God said that. But these things just aren't true. And one final thought on this, Kevin. I've often wondered why it is that we Christians would even listen to somebody like this, especially those of us who have at least a working knowledge of the Word of God? And the answer is, we all like shortcuts. Rather than waiting on the Lord, rather than waiting for God to prepare us for the things that lie ahead in our future, uh, we sort of want the Cliff Notes version, just let's just cut to the chase, Lord. And, and so we love it when somebody says, God says to tell you this. It is dangerous, it is wrong, it is false. So, Kevin, be really, really careful. It is not your fault rest comfortably in that knowledge. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, if adultery occurs in a marriage and the couple stays together, does the marriage covenant need to be renewed? Um, no, it doesn't need to be renewed. I mean, the renewal comes when the offender uh, is repentant and when the victim um, extends forgiveness. That's that's when the, the marriage is renewed. Uh, the marriage covenant in and of itself is a ceremony. That's all it is. It, it's much more important what happens in the heart. Now, it is not unusual that people who have blown a marriage and then make another stab at it together, uh, it's not unusual that they want to have a marriage renewal. And, and I don't think there's anything harmful. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But your question was, does the covenant need to be renewed? And the answer is no. Remember that God is always more interested in what happens in your heart than what happens in any sort of public ceremony. So uh, this is a matter that's up to you. If you if you uh, want to celebrate that you and, and, and your spouse are staying together, uh, if you want to use this as an opportunity to testify about the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, uh, his willingness to put what was broken back together and keep it whole, then it's okay. But it certainly doesn't need to be renewed. You know, Anonymous, when we think about adultery, and of course that is the worst thing that can happen in a marriage, um, but remember always that, that adultery um, doesn't demand divorce. Adultery permits divorce, but adultery doesn't demand it. It's reconciliation, um, forgiveness, and repentance is always God's first choice. But what you do with that is up to you. So I hope that helps. Here is a question from Chuck. Is it sin to doubt my salvation? Um, Chuck, it's not sin. We all have doubts. Uh, I think it is um, 
one of those times thinking Jesus would say, oh, you have little faith. And I think, Chuck, and again, not to make anybody feel guilty here, but I just think sometimes when we have these doubts, the doubts that come from an enemy or doubts that come from circumstances, I think I think what we've got to do is got to run to Jesus and thank him for the gift of salvation that he gave us. We doubt because circumstances aren't going the way we thought they would. We doubt because we had expectations and those expectations weren't met. We doubt because bad things happen to us or, or because we get sick. And you wonder, well, Jesus, why would this happen if I belong to you? So understand, Chuck, that it's always the enemy's goal to make you doubt your salvation it's always Jesus' goal for you to rest in the security of your salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, says that God so wanted you to be secure that he gave you his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Now, that's a gift from God. Your inheritance is guaranteed not by people, but by God. You can't get a better guarantee than that. And God says, I want you to rest in that. Imagine if you went home every day and your husband or your wife said, I'm not sure you love me. And your spouse said, I love you. I love you with all of my heart, but I'm not sure you love me. I don't feel like you love me. That would do damage to the relationship. In the same way, doubting your salvation and chewing on that doubt, not recognizing it as an attack from the enemy, is going to do damage to your relationship with Jesus. And as I mentioned a moment ago, I just think there's times when Jesus is saying, what more do I have to do? I became a man so that you could be secure. First John, these things are written that you may know that you're saved. That you may know, not guess, not hope, but that you may know. And I think this is one of the things that we've got to settle once and for all. Hebrews says his sacrifice was given once for all. That means you forever. So I think what we've got to do, Chuck, is remember always that our salvation is a gift from God. God doesn't give and take away. God simply offers the security that he knows we crave. And we've got to stop listening to the voice of the devil. We've got to stop looking at circumstances. What we need to do is hold fast to that which we know for sure. I had a good friend who once said in a message, I've stolen it ever since. Never throw away what you're sure of for something you're not sure about. And I am absolutely sure, Chuck, of my salvation. Let me say this, Chuck, and I think this is honoring to the Lord, and I think it'll be instructive for you. I've been saved now for 30 years, a little bit more than 30 years. Actually, I'm going on 30 and a half years. That's how fast time is going. And I've never had a single moment's doubt about my salvation. Never once. Not when I messed up, not when things were going well, not when things were going horribly. I've always known that Jesus died for my sins. I've always known that my place in heaven is secure. I've always known that he was with me. There are times when my sin would sort of prohibit our fellowship from flourishing. But I always have known that he's there for me. Now, one explanation here that I think is vital, Chuck. If you are living in sin, our Bible is written, the Holy Spirit's job is to make you feel insecure. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 5. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no way that the Holy Spirit is going to give you security in your salvation if you're living a sinful lifestyle. If your life is characterized by anger, if your life is characterized by sexual immorality, if you're doing drugs or drinking alcohol, you're getting drunk, those things, how can we be secure in our salvation if we're living a life that would suggest we're not saved at all. So here's what you do. You make sure. Make your calling and election sure. And the way you do that is to let the Spirit of God penetrate your heart. Take a long walk with Jesus and just say, Jesus, I want to be sure I'm yours. If there's a need to repent 
for things that you're doing, do it. Don't hold anything back. Repent. And then all you have to say is, Jesus, I want to know I'm loved. And he'll love you. I promise you that. So Chuck, I hope that helps you. 340-9585. Friday, sometimes the phones are quiet. We'd love to have your calls and questions. Here is an interesting anonymous question. I need help with my addiction to social media. Thoughts. Yeah, personal discipline. Make a choice. Um, I don't understand this. I honestly don't. This is a hard thing for me to address. Uh, I'm not uh, even on social media. I don't do Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram, Snapchat. Those are the only ones that I even know exist. Or any of the other platforms. Uh, Honestly, I don't care what other people think. I'm not concerned about what other people think. I'm back. Thank you. That was a sneeze break. (laughs) Uh, um, And I don't understand the need to be constantly reinforced with other people's opinions, whether they like you or don't like you, uh, whether they friend you or unfriend you. None of that matters. And social media to me is simply our flesh crying out for the approval of other people. Either that or our flesh saying, you know, everybody needs my opinion. I think the source of that is pride and um, a neediness. Paul and I were talking about neediness on the program yesterday. So here are my thoughts. Get off social media. If there's somebody in your house that, that will hold you accountable, you just tell them, keep me off these platforms. And um, if you really want help, Jesus will give it to you. But if you uh, insist on doing that which you know is causing you difficulty, uh, then there's no help. I mean, we you know, we can help ourselves in this case, but it requires self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So walk in the Spirit. You will not satisfy the, the lust of the flesh. You, um, and and just, just open your Bible. Talk to Jesus during these things. But uh, I have no capacity at all to understand um, people who, with other people in the room, will have their heads buried in their phones. People sitting at restaurant tables, their phones are what's got their attention. Instead of conversation, people who won't pray, but they will text and tweet and the other things all day long. I don't get it. It makes no sense to me. We've got to throw off everything that hinders. This is Hebrews. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And believe me, social media is a hindrance to your fruitful walk with Jesus. So Anonymous, that's all I can tell you. If you aren't going to help yourself, and I don't mean in your strength, but I mean in the power of the Holy Spirit, then you're not going to uh, um, allow Jesus to convict you and and uh, give you the direction you need. So please just listen to the Lord. Larry said, should Christians avoid unbelievers so they don't get tempted? Um, Larry, Christians should never avoid unbelievers. I mean, we shouldn't hang out with them in the sense that they're our friends and we're going to do the things that they do. But remember, unbelievers are the object of our ministry. So here's what we do. We go to unbelievers and we tell them about Jesus. Now, believe me, if you're telling unbelievers about Jesus, the people in your life, whether they're friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, it doesn't matter. If you're telling them about Jesus, I promise you they're going to separate themselves from you. So don't avoid unbelievers. And especially you want to be careful when you're around unbelievers so that you don't get caught up in the things that they're talking about or the things that they're doing because then you will get tempted. I mean, the enemy is going to use every opportunity that he can to to trip us up. So no, we shouldn't avoid unbelievers, but our mission with unbelievers is to make them believers. 
We don't do that by arguing. We just share Jesus. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. It means that we love them enough to want them in heaven, love them enough to risk friendships or relationships, uh, to to tell them what they need to get to heaven. Um, when we're walking by faith and, and unbelievers are watching, they ought to know who you are and for whom you stand. And if you'll do that, Larry then God will put you in a position where the power of the Holy Spirit will be available to you to resist any temptation. But but no, this isn't us versus them. Us, we're Christians, but our mission is to go win them to Christ so that they will have an eternity in heaven just like we do. It's very important. Um, avoiding them uh, isn't the answer. Walking as light when you're with them, Larry, is. Maurice asks, is there any way of knowing who the Antichrist will be and when he will come? Uh, Maurice, no. There is no way of knowing. I was listening to somebody today who uh, was asked, do you think the Antichrist is alive? Now, I didn't, he didn't answer the way I would have answered. Uh, my answer would have been, I hope so. And the reason I would have said I hope so is because if the Antichrist is living right now, that means there is a, a, a finite amount of time um, for uh, for uh, us to be here. Uh, what it means is that, that Jesus is coming soon and the Antichrist, let's just say he's um, 20 years old. He doesn't know who he is yet, that's for sure. But if the man who's going to be identified as the Antichrist is 20 years old, that means Jesus could be coming at any second. At any second. That's important. Uh, but there's no way of knowing uh, in in my thirty years walking with Jesus, guesses guesses have been made over and over and over about who he is. I think it's this. I think it's this, and nobody knows that silliness. And none of that is true. And when he will appear, I, we don't know that either. Except he will appear at exactly the right time. Let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I've I've been um, watching the humongous mess that's unfolding over in Afghanistan, and it got me to wondering two things. One, what power, what what part would the Middle East be playing in the end times as far as power? Because Wednesday night, you know, we we talked about Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and you know, and, and the different you know uh, power, you know, races or, or national. I don't know whoever they are, you know, that are going to be in power. And then the other question is, and this is going to sound real funny the way I'm wording it, but it's the only way I can think of it. Who's their daddy? Who 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 did they come from? Like like the uh, I guess the Afghans or, or the whole Middle East people was Ishmael their their dad or something? I don't know if this is making any sense. Forgive me if it sounds kind of wonky. No. But. Yeah, it's Cindy. It's impossible to trace Ishmael's descendants in some fashion or form. Um, Ishmael is the father of the Arab peoples. Uh, that is to be sure. However, um, you know the, the way the people spread out. There's just no way of knowing where he is. You know, um, when you get into that part of the world and it's so unsettled, you know, the, the Bible says in the end times, in the last days, nations will rise against nations. And we think, okay, that's U.S. versus China. It's not. It's, it's, it's the word ethnos, and it means clans. And that's what we see. And those clans, even inside Afghanistan, don't get along. You know, we, there's been a lot of talk in these last few days about about the rebirth of Al-Qaeda and the rebirth even of ISIS uh, b- because Afghanistan's given over to terrorism now and the Taliban uh, is in control. Um, um, you know, e- even the, their own kingdom is divided. Satan's kingdom, I said on, on Wednesday night, is always divided. And that's the case even now. So um, um, it's it's impossible, really, uh, to know where they trace their ancestry. But here's what we know for sure. Uh, we know that the situation there is uh, cruel. Uh, we have abandoned people who helped us. 
there are currently right now on the ground in Afghanistan Americans who have been given no hope or expectation at all of being rescued by our people. Um, um, we're, we're, we know that British forces and French forces are on the ground rescuing their people. Uh, out of that mess, what we have done is abandon our allies. We've abandoned those who helped us in Afghan, and we have surrendered an entire nation over to uh, terrorists. And, and, and the, the price to pay, we think we have chaos on the border here. How much more is it chaos now that's going to affect uh, the larger part of the world? I got an email today requesting funds for a group of believing Green Berets who are going over there, who, who all of whom served in Afghanistan, and they're um, risking their lives to go over there on their own, not government sanctioned, on their own, to try to rescue some of the people that, um, that, uh, that they tried to help. That's how bad things are. We need to be praying for the situation in Afghanistan and for our government. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the show, 340-9585. Cindy, I'm sorry I didn't have uh, more specific information, but the, um, the, the study of the origins of the Afghan people uh, not just the Afghan people, others as well, is is uh, long and involved, and I don't have that information uh, at my recall. Here is a question from Eddie. He says, will you please talk about Hebrews 1, 1 and 2? I assume, Eddie, you want me to talk about what it means. Let me read it. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Uh, a couple of things. Verse 2 says he's spoken to us by his son. Literally in Greek, it's in son. And here's what he's saying. The, the only thing God has to say in these days was said by Jesus. It was his coming to earth to save the world, to offer forgiveness of sins. That was God's final word. Now, there's there's some final words yet to come. When Jesus returns, he's got another final word, and the word is going to be judgment and wrath. So here's what he's saying. Remember this letter to Jewish converts to Christianity. And he's saying, in, in the past, it's true that God spoke to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, uh, 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 Jacob, uh, Moses, David. In the past, God spoke to them. He sent prophets. That was how God spoke to the people. The prophets, you remember, Jesus tells a lot of parables about them. The prophets were abused and beaten and even murdered. Uh, and so he spoke to them many times in various ways. So in the past, that was the way it used to be. But now, and Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, by the way, is a great argument for uh, a dispensational view of scriptures. Because God doesn't do things now the way he did them then. But, verse 2 says, in these last days, the last days always refer to, to the, the time between Jesus' ascension into heaven after his death and resurrection and his return uh, as outlined to us in Revelation chapter 19. So in these last days, he has spoken, already said, past tense, in Son, Jesus is the final word. He has nothing else to say. We're not going to have a bunch of prophets roaming the world again until the Great Tribulation, when Moses and Elijah are going to appear at the Western Wall, and for three and a half years, they're going to be prophesying the return of Jesus Christ. Until that moment... 
God said everything he has to say. Now, for a lot of people, you know, I said earlier, we like the Cliff Notes version of of hearing from Jesus, somebody else telling us, or uh, a prophet telling us, well, God says this to you. Um, we ought to be delighted that Jesus is the last word because we literally have everything we need about what Jesus said in our Bibles. So that means there's no information that we don't have. There's no information that we still need. All we need is Jesus. What he said, what he told us, he said to go into the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded. That's our job. And it's not like there's going to be an amendment to that because Jesus has already spoken. So, Eddie, what this means is simple and it's gloriously freeing that we know exactly who he is. We know what he wants from us. We know how we should respond. And we don't have to doubt it. We don't have to doubt it for a moment. I love what the next verse says, Eddie, in chapter 1, verse 3. It says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Why do we need any further word? Then Jesus, if Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, literally it's the afterglow or the outshining of God's glory. And the exact representation, this is as powerful a statement to the deity of Christ as there is in all of our Bibles. And for all of you who are worried about climate change, those who are worried about COVID, those of you who are worried about the world wasting away, burning up, being torn apart by war, It says that he is sustaining all things by his powerful word. That means just that. He is sustaining all things. So we don't need to worry about those things. Jesus has already spoken to us. One other comment on this, Eddie, and and, um, I don't know who you are, so this isn't personal. This is just a general word, I think, to all of us. Uh, We have a tendency to worry about so many things. And I often say to people, you know, the things that you're worried about, being a Christian makes those things so simple. We, we know what to do when we get up in the morning. We know what promises have been made. All we have to do is believe them, count on them, and if we'll do that, then we've got the answers that the rest of the world is perplexed over. They're wringing their hands over all those issues that I mentioned And Jesus has the answer. We can lean in to his sovereignty. We can know that he has a plan and he's going to be the one in control. For example, the people who are, well, the climate, the earth only has another 10 or 12 years before the damage is irreversible. We're going to ruin this planet and people are going to die. Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem And there has to be a Jerusalem. There has to be a Mount of Olives because that's where he's going to set his feet on both sides of the Mount of Olives. And everything is going to change. But until that time, God's final word has been given to us through Jesus. Thank you for the question, Eddie. Appreciate it very, very much. Irene says, my question is about 1 John 2.19. Does that mean that if you sin, you're not saved? No, Irene, that's not what it means at all. 1 John 2.19 is a passage of scripture that says of professing believers, they went out from us to demonstrate or to prove that they really were not a part of us. It doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It doesn't mean that they weren't saved. What he's doing there is identifying the pretenders from the real believers. And from the very beginning of the church, and it it goes on through this very time that we live in, you know, we've always been perplexed by the fact that people who appear to be Christians turn out not to be. And we wonder what happened. Did they lose their salvation? Did they give it away? Um, Was God's promise not fulfilled? Um, John is simply saying that there are pretenders out there. Now, in this particular case, for First John, the same thing is also true in Peter's epistles. Both of those men were vexed in their hearts based on the actions of Judas. 
you can tell through their writing how distraught they were because Judas, who appeared to be genuine, they counted him as a brother. I mean, think about it. They did miracles with him. Jesus sent them out two by two. They cast out demons. They healed the sick. And yet they didn't know Judas was a traitor. And Jesus said he was doomed from the beginning of time. He's the son of perdition. So Judas went out from them. He left the upper room. And for 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed Jesus. Remember when Jesus said, one of you this very night will betray me. They didn't all look at Jesus and say, well, I knew it was you. They looked at Jesus and said, Lord, is it, is it, is it I? And John and Peter clearly never got over it. And they were always thinking about what happened to them on that mountain when they saw him. That was a profound event that impacted and the other was Judas's betrayal. And so John is basically saying Judas went out from us because he never really belonged to us, even though we thought he did. So, Irene, this isn't about you. This is about people who make a profession of faith. Maybe they even get excited about it, emotional for a while, and, and it appears that they're really following the Lord. But but then they fall away. We like to say, especially when it comes to our family members, especially our kids. Well, no, our kids are raised in church. They're Christians. But if they're not walking with Jesus, that's a dangerous assumption to make. And we don't want to give anybody in sin any security at all in their salvation. So all it means is, John is saying, when people come in and appear to be believers, but they end up walking away, it's okay. They never really were believers at all. It's the only thing that that can mean, Irene, and I hope that gives you some comfort. By the way, a lot of times, those who walk away for a time really are believers, and we know that because they come back. They come back like the prodigal son. They come back. But God knows that. We don't. When people walk away from Christ, I'm done. He didn't didn't work for me. Um, I'm I'm on to bigger and better things. Uh, then we treat people acting like unbelievers, like they're unbelievers. And if that's the question, then my prayer is that um, we treat them as unbelievers. Thank you, Irene. Appreciate the question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Call in question from Ray. He asks, um, Are there seven archangels? Um, um, we don't know that. That's uh, Catholic theology, but we don't know that. We know only two. We know that Michael is an archangel, and we know that Gabriel is an archangel. Uh, there are some who say that Gabriel is is not an archangel. I I, I don't think that's the case. But um, um, Ray, the archangels, Michael, of course, is Israel's prince or Israel's protector. And it appears that the only angel that is comparable to him in strength is the the, the angel formerly known as as uh, Lucifer, and of course we know him as Satan or the devil. But uh, no, I, there, there's no evidence whatsoever that there are are seven archangels. We know there are archangels. We know there are cherubim and seraphim. We know that there are powerful, powerful angels. Uh, at a lower level than they than the archangels, um, but 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 we're we're I think intentionally given vague information about the angelic world. We have a tendency as humans to to focus on anything greater than us, angels. We 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 go angel crazy in different periods of time during the the years I've been saved. And I think God says no. The angels are are, are nothing more than than ministering spirits. They're, they're the ones who look to me for direction. And when we want to think about angels, we ought to be thanking God for them for whatever it is they do. So, seven archangels, there is no biblical evidence whatsoever. Thank you for that one, Ray. And Anna, Anna says, I think Anna is, is Anna with two N's. Anna is one N. I think that's the case. So this would be uh, Anna. 
Should Christians ever have friends who are not believers? Of course you should. Um, um, and, I, and I dealt, Anna, with this question a little bit about should we avoid unbelievers? Um, but no, if you've got friends, be be a good friend, but, but be good enough friend that when you're with them, um, you're going to tell them about Jesus. They're going to see Jesus in you. You cannot be a friend of an unbeliever and act like they do. That's going to cause compromise in your walk. Um, you can't do the things unbelievers do. But if they're really your friends, when they ask you to go out and party, you'll say, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, Jesus just wouldn't be comfortable there. Now, you may say, well, if I talk like that, I'm not going to have any friends at all. Well, that's okay. Jesus said you were his friend, and that's okay. And wherever you go to church, I'm sure there are a whole bunch of people who are like-minded and like-hearted, and they can be your friends. But uh, I know we all have friends and family members from our past lives, uh, and that's okay. But but if they're really your friend, if you really care about them, you want them to know without doubt that you stand with Jesus. That means when they're doing bad things, you got to call them on it. Say, so you know we're friends, but you shouldn't be doing this. This isn't the way godly people behave. And if they say, well, I'm not a godly person, say, that's okay, but I'm out of here. I love you but I'm out of here. And every time that you're around them, they ought to be hearing about Jesus from you, what he's doing in your life. They ought to see the light and the joy that you have that they crave. But yes, of course, we can have friends who are not believers. Uh, but again, a real friend is willing to risk the relationship to share Jesus with the people that we care about. We're more interested in where they spend eternity than whether or not they choose to remain our friend here on earth. So if you want to be a really good friend, Anna, you keep sharing Jesus with the people you hang out with. But of course you can have friends who aren't Christians. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Natalie asks, I've been told in church that I have a spirit of bitterness. How should I respond? Um, Natalie... First of all, there's no such thing as a spirit of bitterness. That's ugly flesh. Now, if you're holding on to bitterness, the way you should respond is you should take a long walk with Jesus and say, Lord, is it true? Again, there's not a spirit that needs to be cast out. I don't know if that's what your friend is implying. Uh, if they're just saying, you know, you're no fun to be around. You're you're a downer. You're You're bitter and you're angry. Um, if those things are true, the Spirit of God will reveal it to you. And the one thing as Christians that we can't be is angry and bitter. and uh, It's just a horrible witness for Jesus. So find out if it's true. You know, I'm a pretty public person, and there are people who don't like the things that I say, and they say bad things about me. My, my only response is, Lord... Is it true? If it's true, I repent. But it's not a spirit. That's just your ugly flesh. So, Natalie, be honest with yourself. Let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart as clearly, and he will be very clear. Uh, And then just decide, okay, I'm going to change. You know, sometimes anger and bitterness, and I lumped them together. You didn't, Anna. But, you know, they're, they're habits, and they become uh, bad habits for, um, uh, we, we get comfortable with them. And I think it's just something that we have to be really, really careful with. So please, 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 um, let the Lord really search your heart. And if you do that, he'll tell you, and you can... Respond accordingly. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, Here's an anonymous question. I read a lot and find myself confused sometimes about things I was once sure about. Uh, Does what you believe change occasionally? Um, It's an interesting question, anonymous. Yeah, we, we grow in the grace and knowledge of God. We grow in the grace and knowledge of God's Word. 
But here's here's the the problem, and, and here's why I'm. This is why I'm reading your question. If I'm wrong, then please send me a, another one. Um, but I think when it comes to, to studying doctrines of our faith, um, you've got to make a decision about what's true and hold on to it. If something is true today, then it's it's equally true ten years from now. Now your understanding about it can grow. Um, it's possible that there's some things 10 years early you were wrong about. Uh, but but see, the Spirit of God will lead you into those things. So I don't know what you're talking about specifically. But, but if you're one of those people who is always searching and never finding, then you're going to continually be all over the place regarding doctrine. Doctrine is important. Paul told Timothy, his protege, the son of the faith, he said, watch your life and doctrine closely. And the reason that he does that is because doctrine matters. It, it, it depends or, or, or uh, results in how we live our lives. So um, not having any more information than this, all I can say is find the things that you know for sure are true. Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. He didn't stay dead. He is God forever God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, one God in three persons, the essentials of the historic Christian faith. Think about those things and hold on to them for dear life and never let them go. Doctrines of election, doctrines of uh, eternal security, um, uh, eschatology. Um, When you find out what's true, hold on to it. And again, while you will grow in the knowledge of those doctrines, the doctrines themselves won't change. Uh, Anonymous, one of the things I I can say about about my own um, walk with the Lord over these years is that I have not shaken myself from one thing that I was ever convinced of was true. Again, I've grown in understanding of those things. But how could I, as a pastor, lead a flock of people if I kept changing my mind about what was true. If one day I'm pre-trib, the next day I'm post-trib because I read a book. I think sometimes we read so much. You know, um, Paul was accused, your great learning has driven you insane. I know a lot of people like you who have read and read and read and read and they're influenced by the argument posed by the people they're reading rather than being influenced by the Word of God and holding on to it. Now, I am a reader. I I, I used to be a reader um, before my vision went. Um, but but I read through that, that discernment that demanded I hold on to the things that I knew were true. And so if I would read somebody and he had a different view on election than I did, no matter how great his argument may have sounded, I just thought, well, no, that 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 is inconsistent with the nature and the character of God. So I know that's not true. And so it never bothered me to read some things that I didn't agree with because I had that compass point that, that kept me steady. So be steady. Don't be up and down. Don't be all over the place. Figure out what it is you believe. You, your Bible, and the Holy Spirit. Don't worry about what the church fathers taught. Don't worry about what some of the great theologians uh, in our generations ever thought or taught. Instead, very simply, let them know that this is what I believe. And there will be consistency in your walk and steadiness in your walk. I want to say again, I, I've, there isn't a single thing that I was sure was true that I have jettisoned because... Uh, somebody convinced me of a position because of an argument that they made. And it served me very, very well. Hope that answers your question. I think we're inside three minutes now, so um, on Rachel's question part of the last one I get to for the week. Rachel said, Pastor Ron, I went to a church recently where there was a lot of running around and yelling during worship. Is that normal? Uh, Rachel, I sure hope not. No, it's not. Um we're in First Corinthians. Uh, we went through chapter twelve, and now in chapter thirteen, chapter fourteen, we're going to talk about 
um, what a church should look like, decency and order in the church. And uh, what you found yourself involved with was a uh, a, a wildly charismatic church, um, not not suggesting that the people aren't saved, uh, but they don't really know him. They may be saved, but they don't really know him because they know that if they did, they'd know that he is a God of, of order. And when you're in a church where people are speaking all at the same time in tongues or when they're running around the church or falling down during worship, there is nothing that would appear to be control in those churches. So, um, Rachel, just don't stay away from that church and churches like it. Find a church that teaches the Bible. Find a church that, through their worship, praises God. Now, there are different personality styles of worship. Some are, are more out there than others. But when you see people out of control, you can recognize, and you'll, you'll recognize it, but you'll recognize that you're in a church that's out of control, a church that isn't healthy. So find a church, a solid church, where the Bible's taught, a church where you can use your gifts, a church where you can serve for the benefit of others. And when you do that, uh, your level of discernment will grow and, and increase. You know, we've, as a result of uh, the pandemic and so many churches closing, uh, we have, uh, Rachel, a lot of new people coming to our church from bad churches. And one of the comments that we get all the time is, as I never knew church could be like this. I never knew the Bible could be explained like this. I never saw people love like this. And that's the kind of church that you want to find. So less hysteria and more study and more commitment. Just look for a church that's solid and you'll grow and be blessed. Hey, thank you for the week. Thanks for tuning in. This has been The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Have a wonderful week serving the Lord. Go to church and find somebody you can be a blessing to. Lord willing, I'll see you next Monday. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.